Help us today. God, I pray that you would help us to grow in grace and in knowledge. God, I pray that you would equip us to do the work of the ministry through the next uh, teachings that we'll hear. God, especially this hour, we want to commit to you now. I pray you would help me to speak clearly as I ought. And God, I pray that you would uh, cause all of us not just to understand your truth better, but to love what is true and to love you more because of what your word says about this important topic. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about singleness. This is actually a two-part lecture. Part one is now. Part two will be um, after, right before lunch. Well, I think there's a great need for equipping on this topic. In part because there are more singles today than ever before. And that number is increasing. And that's not just because the number of people in our country is more than ever before. Never before in the history of our country has there been a higher percentage of adults who are unmarried. According to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics... In 2014, for the first time in American history, the number of unmarried American adults outnumbered those who were married. 2014. Now, part of the reason for that statistic is due to the rising ages at which people are beginning to marry. In 2016, the the median age for one's first marriage was 30 for men. And 28 for women. So, so not everyone who makes up this majority will, will stay unmarried of American adults. But, on, on the other hand, it's not only that people are postponing marriage, which, which leads us to this trend. There are more people than ever before in our society who intend never to marry. And, and I assume that this increase of singleness also means that the number of people who do desire to marry, but are not, also is increasing. Well, here, here's a picture for you. Um, the percentage of the population ages 25 to 54 who are married or unpartnered and co- cohabiting. So a lot of times when, uh, when I have said that, that the number of married people is decreasing percentage in America drastically, people might assume, well, that's just because cohabitation is on the rise. So people are still partnering up, but they're not getting married. And that is true. That is rising. But there's still also a large number of people who are are not partnered in any sense, much more than in 1990. And if you think about 67% of people ages 25 to 54 who who were married down to 53% just across 30 years, how many millions of people, tens of millions of people, are represented in that 14% of the American population between 25 to 54. That's a lot of people. Okay? We need to talk about this. In addition, because the prevailing perspectives about singleness in our culture today are unbiblical, and those perspectives infiltrate the church too, we all need to have our minds renewed about this Topic: If we're not taught a biblical perspective on singleness, we will adopt wrong perspectives about it. And, and I, I do think there's a great lack of good teaching and equipping 
on this topic. I think we have a lot of good teaching about marriage, uh, but, but we need to be equipped in this area as well. I think there are two big ditches we can fall into uh, in an unbiblical perspective. On the one hand, an unbiblical view would be that singleness is bad, or at least it cannot be good or blessed like married life. Well, wait, it, is that really wrong? Yes. Perhaps somewhat surprisingly, the New Testament gives a fundamentally positive view of Christian singleness. The New Testament affirms, even in some ways esteems, the unmarried state. So according to the New Testament, singleness is not an altogether undesirable state where we can find undesirable people. That's not the New Testament teaching. And, and as I researched uh, this topic, I found that many Christian leaders, even some that are otherwise very solid, I think say some very unhelpful things about singleness, especially that don't seem to jive with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, on the other side, the other ditch, an unbiblical view would be that singleness is good, but for sinful reasons. Okay, I think the, the reason why in this picture the numbers of a marriage are going down so drastically is not because people are having a more positive view of singleness for biblical reasons, but for sinful reasons, right? And, and what are some of those? What, what, could we, what could we think of? Go ahead, throw, throw them out. Why would someone think singleness is good, but for a, sinful reasons? Yeah, you're not stuck with, with one person. You can, you can sleep around, flirt around, right? What's that? Selfishness. I don't have anyone I need to answer to. I can go where I want, when I want. Yeah, that absolutely does fit into this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All just you can think of just unhindered professional growth and financial um, autonomy, or or even a kind of self-protection. Right. I, I'm not going to get in any situation where I might end up getting hurt. Or, or especially for younger men, um, just just a prolonging of adolescence, uh, a long longer lack of maturity and initiative and and leadership, taking responsibility for another, but but also for oneself. Okay, these these are some reasons people see singleness as good, but but are actually ungodly. So what we need to do is we need to present the positive biblical view of singleness without dishonoring marriage. In any way, all, all the things we just listed of reasons why our world might think singleness is good actually dishonored marriage. And Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all, not just among the married, among all. That's the biblical line we have to walk. We should esteem marriage very highly, but we have to do that in a way that we don't disparage the gift and advantages of Christian singleness. And as we teach on godly singleness, we have to do that in a way that does not denigrate the blessed gift of marriage at all. So if someone is single for reasons that dishonor God's plan for marriage, they should be corrected. And they, they should repent of those sinful motives and ungodly viewpoints. All right, well, how, how do we walk this line? The good news is the Bible sufficiently addresses all potential errors and struggles related to singleness. And it does that as it addresses singleness directly. 
in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Timothy 5, that's a text about widows. Well, widows, that's a subset of singles. Uh, Matthew 19, others. We'll look at most of these texts together today. But from another angle, the Bible's sufficient for counseling singles because any struggle someone might have regarding singleness is ultimately a struggle that's common to man. All struggles a single person may have with being single will resonate down at the root with the same struggles I might have as a married person. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. And the verse does not add a qualification like, that is, unless you're a single person. Now, we can illustrate this uh, scripturally. So I listed on your handout. Here's some examples of temptations or trials that, that are connected with singleness, perhaps, according to scripture. Uh, examples that singleness could occasion. Note, note the word occasion, not cause. Being single doesn't cause anyone to have these temptations and trials, but it could occasion this temptation to sexual immorality. Paul develops this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Discontentment or, or disappointment especially for those who hope to be married but are not. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. In 1 Corinthians 5, that passage about taking care of widows, Paul, Paul says younger widows should marry, and, and in part because of some temptations that the single state might um, occasion for them. Well, he, he says about older widows that there's a danger they could live in selfish indulgence. Uh, living in pursuit of self-gratifying luxuries. And, and younger widows um, could fall into gossip and meddling or idleness. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 5.13 that, that younger widows who don't marry may learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Now, the next ones on your list are more inferred from scriptural principles as opposed to directly stated in connection with singleness. But, but we can think of loneliness. Genesis 2.18, God, God told Adam while he was single, it's not good for man to be alone. Isolation and hiding, Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. First uh, John 1 is the passage that contrasts walking in the light and walking in darkness. That is, that is pursuing righteousness and openly confessing your sin instead of hiding or minimizing it. Hebrews 3 and, and 10, this talks about how believers need other believers to warn us, to watch over us, so no one's hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, so a single person could be tempted to withdraw from community and accountability. Shame, it's a can be a very real temptation for singles. They, they can begin to assume that Others must assume that they're unmarried because something's really wrong with them. Or maybe other people have said things like that to them that make them think that. Covetousness, the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet anything that's your neighbor's. And specifically, one of the things that's listed is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Don't, don't covet your neighbor's marriage. Now, here, here's especially what I want you to see for, for the present point. None of these temptations or trials are unique to singles. 
None of them. A married man can covet his neighbor's wife. Most of the counseling I've done related to sexual immorality has been for married people. And married people can be very lonely. You know that? And that's an especially painful kind of loneliness. To be one flesh with another person, but, but to feel practically all alone. And you know, as biblical counselors, that married people can be profoundly discontent, disappointed with how life is going. I think this can be helpful to point out to singles to let them know their struggles are fundamentally the same as other believers. I think there's a temptation to think, most of the people around me are married, so my situation must be extraordinarily difficult. Most people can't really understand. They, they can't help. But the trials and temptations associated with singleness are not extraordinary, as if they require some kind of extraordinary solution or extraordinary grace from God other than what's offered to all believers through the gospel, through what Jesus has done by the power of the Spirit. I think that's an incredibly hope-giving word. Now, now here's an illustration of this I thought was good. I listened to one interview with Pastor John Piper. A single wrote into him and asked for help in, with contentment and how could he as a single uh, treasure Christ supremely when he wanted to be married so badly. And here's how uh, this Piper began his response. The first thing I want to say to David, the single who wrote in, is... That the desire to be married, a good desire, is one of hundreds of desires that might compete with satisfaction in Christ. A desire to have a job if you don't have one. A desire to be free from cancer when you're sick. A desire to no longer be blind if you're disabled. A desire to have enough money to go to college when you don't. A desire to be tall instead of short. In other words, the desire for marriage is not unique. It is not a unique challenge. I don't want David to feel isolated Like he has a battle to fight that I don't have. We all have desires that put us in the same battle for how contentment or satisfaction in Christ relates to the intensity of those desires. So I think in all of the most important ways, all of you biblical counselors, even if you're not single and haven't been for a long time, are already equipped to counsel all of the most substantial struggles someone might have with being single. I mean, all the scriptural counsel, almost all of it, that you would give to married people regarding sexual immorality, discontentment, etc., all of that will pertain. So, what I want to do in these next two lessons especially is, is to lay on top of that biblical equipping just a biblical perspective on singleness, a biblical perspective on singleness. And I have eight truths to share that that I think will help build that for you. Now, the first one here, singleness, like marriage, is a gift from God. We're, We're going to spend more time on this one than any other. And we'll need to, because as you'll see, and I'll admit this up front, that, that this is debated amongst Christians, even amongst like-minded Christians, very solid Bible-teaching Christians. So I'm going to present my view. You, you test all things, hold to what is good. What does it mean that singleness is a gift from God? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, open your Bibles there, and, and we'll be there for a long time as we work through this. It's the longest, most direct treatment of singleness in Scripture. 
And this first truth is, is really the main thesis on singleness in the chapter in verse 7. Is where this is stated. But, but let's consider the context running up to it. Um, the Apostle Paul says in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay, so sex and marriage is good. And, and this principle in verse 2 is stated as kind of a blanket statement. And I, I think that indicates we should understand marriage will be normative. Most, most believers will end up married. This, this will be the norm. Well, next, Paul talks about uh, conjugal rights in marriage and, and says that uh, right sex is good in marriage and there should be a complete mutuality about it. Then in verse 6, he, he transitions and starts to speak about singleness. So look as I read at verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, stop. That The next verse makes it clear. He's talking about singleness there, um, if you look at verse 8, he says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So, so that's what he's talking about in verse 7. So again, verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, single, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. One has this gift, one has the other gift. He's clearly talking about marriage and singleness. Both marital states are gifts from God. And Paul presents them here as, as equivalent gifts that can stand parallel with each other. There's no hint here that one is a lesser gift of God than the other. They're, they're just different gifts. God gives one to some and the other to others. Now, to be more specific, what exactly is the gift of singleness? Who has it? How can we know? Well, there are two main ways one could understand the gift of singleness. Is it, one, a special God-given ability to be content and self-controlled as a single? Or just the state of being single in and of itself? Now, the, the most common way the gift of singleness is talked about, which, which I'm going to argue against is the first option, that those who have the gift of singleness or those who are single like it in some measure, and, and so they voluntarily choose to remain single. So, for example, here's one very well-known pastor whom I look up to who said in a sermon several years ago, there are some people who have a gift for singleness. That means a unique spiritual capacity to remain single for the purpose of serving the Lord Unless you have that gift and it's clearly defined for you by no desire at all for marriage, then you need to be married. I wonder if that really actually describes anyone. I've never personally met a single person that that describes. In another place, this, this pastor said in a sermon, the gift of singleness is best known by those who feel a strong, complete comfort in being single and no strong desire for a partner. So, so in this view, the gift of singleness is, is a supernatural contentment that God gives to some people to be single. Now, now not all versions of this, this view of the gift of singleness are stated in such extreme 
terms as a complete comfort. Um, another pastor uh, who, who I also greatly love and respect says, Scripture does not claim that people who are gifted to be single have no sexual desire and no interest in the close companionship that marriage offers. Instead, those who are gifted to be single can be content without being married and are able to keep sexual desires under control. So, right, less extreme. But fundamentally, that's it's the same idea. And along similar lines, I've, I've heard some pastors, pastors I, whom I love and respect, um, say that the gift of singleness is actually better called like, the gift of self-control. It's a special ability God gives some Christians to avoid sexual immorality as a married person. I think there are a few problems with viewing the gift of singleness this way. Uh, And first, here are just some practical problems that this understanding can have. So if we say the gift of singleness is just some singles who can be content without marriage and are able to keep sexual desires under control, does that mean people who strongly desire marriage and sex cannot on the other hand, be content without being married, or they're not able to keep their sexual desires under control? Is the way to know that you aren't gifted with singleness failure in contentment and self-control? Only some Christians have the ability from God to say no to sexual immorality as a single? That doesn't accord with what the new, rest of the New Testament says. Further, this view of the gift of singleness, I think, often makes people convinced that God is just having them wait for Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. Uh, of course God will send me someone because he obviously didn't give me the gift of singleness because I want to be married so badly. A future spouse is not something God has promised. That, that's an uncertain hope. It's damaging in the present. It can be devastating in the future. Now, just to illustrate how this understanding of the gift of singleness can lead to that uncertain hope, uh, that, that same preacher I mentioned earlier said, some of you are in the condition of singleness, though you are positive you don't have the gift. You're not married, you don't like it. You're divorced, you don't like it. You're widowed, you don't like it. You really need a partner, I believe, that if you are single and you don't have the gift and your life is as it should be before God, that God will fulfill your desire. I don't know how we can tell people that. that was, <laughs> that's not a prosperity gospel preacher. That's a, that's a, a solid pastor. But right, you, you see how that kind of thinking might arise from this first option of how to understand the gift of singleness. And I would encourage you, even after you hear my presentation, if you think, no, I still think that first option is the way to understand the gift of singleness. Well, don't take it to that conclusion, please. But you can see how it might be tempting to do that, right? Would God really make me stay single if he hasn't given me the gift of singleness? Thus understood? All right, here's another potential problem. If God does not send me a spouse eventually... Then, then a believer might start to feel guilty for desiring a spouse. Since it seems like God might be giving them the gift of singleness, since they're not married yet, 
And so maybe they would start to think it's wrong for them to, to still desire an, an intimate life partner in marriage. Maybe they, they should feel guilty that, that they don't have complete comfort in being single. Well, finally, and as, as a transition to this second point here, I think this understanding is unhelpful because it fails to help single Christians see their current state as a gift of God to be embraced and stewarded well. So, so I think the better option is number two, not just because of potential practical problems, but, but for exegetical reasons too. All right, hang with me here. Think again about verse 7. It says, Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Marriage, singleness. Okay. If someone can be single but not have the gift of singleness, can someone be married and not have the gift of marriage? If they're discontent in their marriage or don't have strong, complete comfort in their marriage or or even strongly desire to be single again, should they conclude God didn't give them the gift of marriage? And then what? What about believers who are single but don't have the gift of singleness as we've been defining it? Do, do some single people have the gift of marriage while they're single? Or, or is it that all married people have the gift of marriage? Some single people have the gift of singleness, but some single Christians have no gift from God relative to their marital status. Verse 7 rules that out. Each one has each one has his own gift from god every believer has presently a gift from god with respect to his or her marital status okay so so you see the conclusion that i'm working towards every believer who is single has the gift of singleness from god for as long as they're single That means all of us have had the gift of singleness from God for some period of time. And at least half of us who are married are going to have the gift of singleness from God again at some point in the future. So I I don't believe someone can have the status of singleness but not the gift because I think 1 Corinthians 7, 7 teaches that God's gift of singleness is the status of singleness. Singleness itself is a gift of God, like marriage. We don't recognize the gifts of God just by how we feel about them. Tim Challies wrote an article, and I listed this article on the resources portion of um, your handout on the last page of these notes. And he wrote in this article, how can you know if you've been given the gift of singleness? You can know through a simple test. Are you married or are you single? (laughs) How can you know if you have the gift of singleness? I don't mean to be trite, but you can go about it this way. Look at your ring finger. No ring, you've got the gift of singleness. Ring, you've got the gift of marriage. The way that someone views their unmarried state will shape the way that they respond to it. If they truly believe that that their current singleness is a personalized 
gift from God to them. And I say a personalized gift because verse 7 said each one has his own gift. God never distributes his gifts haphazardly. So, so really, I think in some ways these two views have overlap. But in other ways, when you actually dig down to it, there are kind of complete opposites about how we should view singleness. Either the unmarried state is a gift from God that, that is good for believers in some ways in and of itself. Or the unmarried state is so bad that it takes a special, rare, supernatural power from God to be able to endure it without sin and sadness. And I think 1 Corinthians 7 teaches it's, it's the former. All right, so consider next on your handout what is meant by calling singleness a gift well, here's a quote from John Stott. Do you know who John Stott is? We raise your hand if you know John Stott. If I'm preaching through a book on the Bible, I sure hope John Stott wrote a commentary about it. He, he's wonderful. He was um, an Anglican pastor. He's with the Lord now. He was single his whole life. And in an interview uh, where he talked about his singleness, he, he referenced verse 7. And this understanding that I've been sharing about what the gift of singleness is, he says, I have myself found help in 1 Corinthians 7. For here the apostle writes, each man or woman has her own, has his or her own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Gift translates charisma, that's the Greek word, which is a gift of God's grace, charis. So whether we are single or married, we need to receive our situation from God as his own special grace gift to us. Now this same Greek word charisma is used in Romans 6.23, translated as free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the charisma, free gift of God's eternal life, the charisma of God. The same word describes marriage and singleness. Um, the same words translated similarly in Romans 5 to speak of the free gift of justification that we have in Christ, the free gift of righteousness from God. This same word charisma is, is used many times later in 1 Corinthians to, to talk about what we often call spiritual gifts. Spirit-driven capabilities God gives to each believer for building up the whole body. Okay, so so hopefully you're starting to get the idea of what is meant by this word gift, charisma. Well, on your handout I listed. Here's how uh, the most well-known New Testament Bible dictionary defines this Greek word, charisma, that which is freely and graciously given, a favor bestowed, gifts of divine beneficence. Generally speaking, earthly goods bestowed by God or special gifts of a non-material sort bestowed through God's generosity on individual Christians. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says singleness is. Just like marriage. Amazing. <laughs> An expression of God's beneficence. God's generosity, God's favor, God's free grace. All right, if this is true, if singleness is a gift of God's grace, how does that influence the way that we, we think about it and respond to it? Well, here are four that I listed on your 
outline. We could think of others, but here are four. If it's a gift of God's grace, it must be good. 1 Corinthians 7 affirms this explicitly. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. God doesn't give bad gifts. Verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. So marriage is good. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Singleness is also good then. So, right, this is not good versus bad. There are two good gifts God gives to believers regarding their marital status. Each one has his own gift from God. So, so we can trust God's benevolence to us while we're single. He is being kind to us. He is doing good to us when he gives this gift to some of his children even if they can't understand it clearly in the moment. And I I think this understanding of singleness helps believers not to fall prey to the same bad theology that Eve started to believe in the Garden of Eden, that God is a God who withholds good from us. That's not true. Now, next on your handout, if singleness is a gift of God's grace, it must be his Sovereign will for me, for right now. Verse 7 said, each has his own gift from God. Now, all of God's gifts, ultimately, are sovereignly administered. Otherwise, they're not free gifts. God's freedom and sovereignty go together. He's the giver. I think the way the the second part of verse 7 emphasizes the same truth where, where it says one of one kind, one of another. Well, there, that, that sounds a lot like the way Paul talks about the later charisma, the later grace gifts, the spiritual gifts, right? Um, those, those gifts, it says to one is given this, to another this gift. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says all these gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Okay, that, that same theology is at work in 1 Corinthians 7. God apportions the grace gifts of marriage and singleness to each Christian individually as he wills, one of one kind, one of another. And let's always keep these first two points tied together, that God's sovereign will is for my good, because he's that kind of God. So, so if my marital status is God's personalized gift of grace, then I must be married or single now because of, of how he has carefully thought about me in particular. Not because he has overlooked my welfare somehow. Now, we acknowledge that, that his benevolence and generosity towards us will not necessarily look like his benevolence and generosity toward others. So the next point on your outline is if, it, if, if singleness is a gift of God's grace, we should thank him for it and not despise the gift or begrudge him for being generous in different ways to others with different gifts. When people give you gifts, you should say thank you. It's good manners. It's good theology. It's godliness. 
Thank God for this gift, even when you struggle to see the goodness in it. And thankfulness to God creates a powerful pull on your heart over time towards love for God and contentment in God. And it protects us from envy, from a begrudging spirit. Ephesians 5.20, give thanks for everything. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. And we acknowledge that it's God's, it's God's prerogative to be generous with his various gifts as he sees fit. In Matthew 20, uh, the, the master at the end of a parable says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Wow. God gives generously to all his children, but not in the same way. He he gives one in one way, gives to another in another way. We should always pursue gratitude towards God. Not grudges against him for the ways that he variously expresses his generosity. Now finally, if singleness is a gift of God's grace, he means for us to benefit from it. And in some ways, to enjoy it while we have it. Now, later in the lecture in part two, we'll, we'll talk more explicitly of how singleness has unique benefits and advantages and also unique joys. But for now, all right, let's just affirm that God is glorified when we enjoy his gifts. It, it exalts his character. It glorifies his name when we show that his gifts are good. Right? He's not like He's not like the clueless uncle who gives you the ugly sweater that you're never going to wear. His gifts are good. And we show that by enjoying what he has given. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly provides us all things to enjoy. Ecclesiastes 5.18-20. I like these verses because they teach one gift God gives is the power to enjoy the other gifts he gives. And specifically, Ecclesiastes 5, it's talking about being able to accept your lot in life and to rejoice in the toil God has given you. And the ability to rejoice in what God has given you is also a gift of God. So, so, so let's encourage people to ask for this gift. Ask God for the gift of marriage, if you desire to be married. But ask God also for the gift, which is the power to enjoy his gifts including singleness. Now, okay, I just listed one potential homework application you could assign to someone on your notes. You can think of others, but here's one just that could reinforce this view in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is a gift of God. Each day this week, write down one reason that your current singleness could be called good. From a godly perspective. This is on your handout, right? And then purpose to thank God for that specifically throughout the day. And then share this thankful list with me when we meet again. All right, one option. Next. Singleness, like marriage, is an assignment and calling from God. I'm getting those words from verse 17. Where Paul says... Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now, this is related to the idea in verse 7. The word assign in verse 17, it could also be translated as 
a portion or distribute or a lot. So, so the term does still carry the connotation of gift from God. But, but if in verse 7, um, if, if what was foregrounded by calling singleness a gift is God's graciousness and benevolence, but still in the background that carries the idea of God's sovereignty... Well, here in verse 17, calling singleness an, an assignment and calling that those are, are flipped. What's foregrounded is God's sovereignty and authority, and but still in the background is, is his, his graciousness. The gift nature of singleness lingers in the background of verse 17 still. All right, so, so we receive our current marital status as something God has ordained for us, at least at the present time, right? Now, to, to wrap your mind around this point, you need to see how Paul's counsel for singles fits into the broader counsel of 1 Corinthians 7. The, the bigger picture in 1 Corinthians 7 is the rule that's here in verse 17. Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. Now, throughout this chapter, Paul speaks to various groups, not just singles, and applies this rule to each group. Uh, to, to, to restate this verse, we could say each believer should, should seek to be faithful in the state God has currently ordained for him instead of clamoring for a change of circumstances, as if that is the key to being more pleasing to God or useful to God or happy in God or holy before God. And so along these lines, the repeated command we find throughout the chapter is remain, remain. It comes up in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. We hear it again in verse 24. Brothers, in whatever condition he was called, let there let him remain with God. The idea is again in verse 26, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And throughout this chapter, Paul applies the rule to various groups, singles and widows, right? Singles are told it's good for them to remain as they are. But the same counsel is given to others in other life circumstances. Married people are commanded to remain in their marriages, even if you're married to an unbeliever, if the unbelieving spouse will consent to it. Also in the chapter, Jews and Gentiles are told to remain in their circumcised or uncircumcised states. Don't go get circumcised. Don't try and hide the marks of your circumcision. Slaves and free men are told to remain in the condition in which they find themselves. That Though slaves should take advantage of opportunities to become free if, um, if they have that. And free people must not seek to become slaves. But, but still, remain is is the command. Do you see the pattern here? All right, Paul's applying this rule to each scenario. And so we find, importantly for our topic at hand, singles are called to pursue contentment and faithfulness in their season of life, just like all other Christians in all other seasons of life. Now, we have to be careful here. If you read all of the chapter carefully, you'll find Paul's not absolute and inflexible in the way that, that he applies this rule of remaining, of just accepting the lot God has given you when you become a Christian. What he's saying is that becoming a Christian makes all of that other stuff relatively unimportant. <laughs> Sometimes Paul allows 
Sometimes Paul even encourages believers to take opportunities not to remain in their present situation in life, like, like slaves, right? Uh, if, they, if you can gain your freedom, go for it, he says in verse uh, 21. So, so Paul's very pastoral and nuanced in the way he counsels. You should not uh, counsel using Paul's rule to remain more rigidly than he did. Okay, Remember 1 Corinthians 5? Paul encouraged younger widows not to remain uh, single. And Paul took the Gentile Titus in the book of Acts uh, to get circumcised, not to remain uncircumcised. So, so, so don't be overly rigid about this, but uh, here's a way to think about it. Th- this rule of 1 Corinthians 7, remain, does not mean it is always wrong for believers to seek changes in their life circumstances. But the general principle is it is good for believers to focus on living the life God has assigned to them in the present. Bear fruit where God has planted you. Again, on your handout, believers should be on guard against thinking, if only I was blank. This is an intentional blank. Some of you really struggle if there's still a blank on your notes. You're going to have to deal with... Yeah, the OCD class. This one's blank on purpose. Sorry. Believers should be on guard against thinking, if only I was married, not a slave, in a different social situation, a Jew. Then I could really serve God and be happy and holy. That's the kind of thinking that Paul's rule is meant to guard against. We must not think that way. We should think the way of verse 17. Let each person live the life the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. So our current status in life, marital status, economic status, social status, etc. It's all part of the life God has assigned or apportioned to us. And and so reading from your handout once more. here's, Here's a couple of more practical points coming from this. What matters most is not whether we are in this state or that, married or single, slave or free, but whether or not we are being faithful and obedient to God no matter what status he has assigned us. I get this especially from 1 Corinthians 7, 18 and 19. Paul's applying this rule to the circumcised and uncircumcised. And he says, reading in verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what matters? What counts? Keeping the commandments of God. We can apply that to to the question of marital status too. Is anyone single? Is anyone married? Here's what counts most. Keeping his commandments. So focus on that far more than you focus on changing your marital status, whether that means getting into a marriage or getting out of one. God is directing your life. Live the life to which he's called you. Obedience matters more than marriage. And getting married or returning to singleness will give you no greater opportunity than you currently have to keep God's commands. 
Here's another helpful point to flesh out the big theme of of chapter 7, the rule of uh, verse 17. Our current lot in life, which he has assigned, is the opportunity God has given us to walk with him. I'm getting that from verse 24, especially the end. I love this. Verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition he was called, let him there remain with God. This life God has assigned to me, single or married, this is the life in which God is with me. This particular set of life circumstances, including my marital status, that he's called me to, this is the opportunity he has given me to be with him, to walk with him. My my current circumstances, it's all part of the wrapping paper of God's gift of himself to me. I can walk with God in this life that he's given to me right now. All right, so, so here is one way you can apply um, this aspect of a biblical perspective on singleness. I have it on your handout. Potential homework application. A single who's struggling with, with, their, <clears throat> with still being single. Whenever, whenever you're tempted to be consumed by thoughts of wanting your life to be different, Instead, turn your thoughts towards what commands of God can I obey right now? That's what I'm going to set my mind on. That's what I'm going to put my biggest efforts toward. What what can I be doing now to obey God's clearly revealed will in the scriptures? And also, what opportunities do I have to walk with God right now? I believe he's with me in this life he's assigned to me. I'm going to turn my thoughts there. Now, to put a bow on this point before we move to the next, um, see on your notes how commentator Anthony uh, Thistleton sums up the main point of of 1 Corinthians 7 and the rule. The key point is not just staying as you were, but that Christians can fully serve Christ as Lord in whatever situation they find themselves. And that's a good word for all of us. So, verse 7, verse 17, these are two big cornerstone truths for adopting a biblical perspective of singleness. We should all receive by faith our current married or unmarried state as a gift from God. We should all receive by faith our current marital status as part of our assignment and calling from God. And yet, that does not mean that our lives will never change in this regard. And the third truth then needed for a biblical perspective on singleness is that singleness, like marriage, is not necessarily a lifelong gift, we'll call it. For example, those who have the gift of marriage could, once again, regain the gift of singleness. At really any moment, if their, if their spouse should die, they become a widow. And while singles are called to trust God's goodness in in how he distributes his grace gifts and to pursue obedience, faithfulness, contentment, 1 Corinthians 7 is emphatic that singles are free to pursue marriage if they desire, and many should. Paul says in verse 7, I wish all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Singleness is not 
God's gift to everyone for always. Verse 9, it is good to remain single, but but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. So those who have strong desires for the intimacies of marriage should pursue marriage. And Paul states that principle in verse 2 as well. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman his or her own husband. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 commends the Christian's freedom to marry beyond verse 9 several more times. Look down at verse 26. I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. You're free to marry. No single person, no single person needs to have an unclean conscience about desiring marriage or pursuing marriage. Having the gift of singleness does not mean that you cannot or should not desire the gift of marriage, pursue the gift of marriage, or accept the gift of marriage. You don't have to choose between wanting to be married and believing God is giving you your current singleness as a good gift of His grace. In verse 35, after commending the benefits of singleness, Paul says, verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. Literally, the word restraint there is noose. I'm telling you there are some advantages to being singleness, but I'm not telling you this to put a noose around your neck and force you to do something you don't want to do. You don't have to feel restrained from pursuing marriage just just because of how I explain the unique benefits of singleness. In verse 36, Paul starts to address especially engaged people. And he says, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not sin. And then verse 38 says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well. If, If you get married, that's a good thing. Verse 39, Paul tells the widow, a wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. So, so, so verse 36 said, let him do as he wishes. Verse 39 says, let her marry whom she wishes. There's incredible freedom in this chapter, isn't there? Uh, of course, we need to point out this freedom to, to marry is not absolute There are some qualifications. We just saw one of them a second ago in verse 39. Believers are only free to marry other believers. Marry only in the Lord. Also, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11 says says there are some unmarried people who are not free to marry, or or in this case to remarry, uh, because they're guilty of an unbiblical divorce. Or or actually, if, if we could be more precise, we could say... Uh, these people are, are technically free to marry, but, but only the spouse they shouldn't have divorced in the first place. In 1 Corinthians 7.10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried 
or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So, so the freedom to marry is not an absolute freedom. There are some biblical qualifications. And along those lines, right, we, we need to distinguish between different kinds of singleness, don't we? There's never married, uh, and, and within that a spectrum of, of how voluntary that is. There, there's widowhood, there's divorced, divorce for biblical grounds or not. So you need to, to give different kinds of counsel to different kinds of singles sometimes. Now here, here's one way to state the scriptural principle again, next on your handout. <clears throat> Singleness should not be imposed upon any believer who desires to be married and has an opportunity to do so within the bounds of scripture and wisdom. I mean, Paul is so strong about this. 1 Corinthians 7.37 Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, no restraint, but having his desire under control, and having determined this in his heart for himself, to keep her as his betrothed, to not become married, he, he will do well. This is not a decision to be forced on people. Actually, Paul is even stronger in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Paul says there that forbidding marriage is an example of a teaching of demons. Forbidding marriage is demonic. (laughs) Marriage is a good gift. Those who marry do well, this chapter said. So, So the gift and calling of singleness is not necessarily a permanent thing. Now, it seems to me that the way Paul talks about this holy uh, freedom to marry suggests a believer should feel very free to very actively pursue marriage. And and that is certainly, I think, one major potential application of this chapter on the topic. And I put it on your handout. This is where we'll land the plane on part one. For those who desire marriage and are not scripturally prohibited from it, We could encourage them as homework. Talk to other mature believers in your church family about your desire to marry. Ask them to pray with you regularly about this. Ask them for counsel on practical ways you could pursue this good gift of God and perhaps even ask for their help. And it's always good to go to the wisdom of mature believers in your local church. Ideally, those are the believers who know you best, who are around you most, who who by God's design has, have, have promised to watch over you, to love you, to admonish you, to share your joys and sorrows. Okay? Now, we could get a lot more practical on this, right? You could have a whole lecture on uh, what, what might be called dating or courtship or something like this, how to find a spouse. But, but I'm not going to get into more, more specifics other than the way Paul talks about the freedom to marry means singles are free to very actively pursue marriage if they desire And that's not contrary to receiving their current state of singleness as a gift from God for which they are thankful and pursuing obedience and fellowship with God and embracing it by faith as their current assignment and calling. I think there's a beautiful balance to these first three points that we've talked about, a biblical perspective of of singleness. A lot of safety, a um, a lot of freedom. God, I pray that you would um, help these dear saints to have their strength restored by this break, that they would be ready and reinvigorated to hear more teaching from your word. 
to receive more equipping for ministry uh, in 15 minutes. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.